every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and thank you for joining us here on the America Out Loud Network. I just want to jump in today with the understanding that, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be pushing some buttons. I know that somebody is going to take what I'm about to share with you as, you know, this is a personal attack on you and you're stupid or you're evil for thinking the way you do. So I want to put this disclaimer out there beforehand. Even if you do jump to that conclusion, even if you get angry at me, you know, send me a nasty email or otherwise, you know, insult my, my parentage, whatever it may be. I'm not sharing this with you to, uh, to show you how right I am and how wrong you are. I'm speaking up, and in this case, I'm going to be sharing some uncomfortable truths because I believe that truth matters. And I think that we live in a time where there is almost universal deceit on the part of many of the institutions around us, particularly our heritage media. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time in this first segment of the program talking a little bit about Ukraine and and an angle that is not being considered, much less given any serious uh, treatment. And the reason I'm doing this is because as as tragic as whatever is happening in Ukraine may be, and and look, war is, it is hell. It's it's an awful thing, and it always has been. But I wanted I want to try to bring some perspective to this situation, especially. Because I believe the political class is well aware that Ukraine is an, an imminently useful distraction from the awkward fact that they wrecked society and they saved no one from COVID with two years of emergency powers and totalitarian mandates. And what that means is they're going to milk this thing for all it's worth. Which means you're going to be seeing and hearing pretty much nonstop Ukraine this, Ukraine that, and I want to just cast enough doubt on their narrative that uh, that you would question the things that are being directed at us rather than take them at face value. Now, if you're like most people, you probably don't have a lot of time to spend, you know, chasing after the truth and to, to be doing all of your own homework. But I'm going to just put this out there. If you are serious about really seeing the world as it is, and if you're serious about not becoming or allowing your mind to be a playable piece on their chessboard. This is something you're going to have to understand. You've got to be willing to question everything. You've got to be willing to question the narrative. So having said that, I don't know if you have noticed, but there's a certain comic book quality to the narrative regarding Russia versus Ukraine. 
right? Russia is this huge evil empire, and, you know, they're just this big bully with, with a madman, right? The next Hitler leading them, and they've attacked this other country right next to them for, for no reason. None whatsoever. They just they just went right after him and and they're doing horrible things. And, you know, this this is the narrative. Oh, but, you know, the brave Ukrainians, they are stopping the Russians on every front. The ghost of Kiev has has shot down. I don't know how many dozens of fighter planes. And, you know, this woman told the soldiers, you put these sunflower seeds in your pockets. So at least flowers will grow where you have died. And the question that I have for you, though, is what what is not being considered or what is not allowed to be part of the consideration of this narrative. For instance, Jordan Schachtel in his dossier substack makes a very strong case that to the conflict we see playing out right now in Russia versus Ukraine is far less a matter of good versus evil and more like two kleptocratic shades of gray. So, you know, if you if you want to believe this is a comic book hero story, That's what the media is going to try to give you. But I want you to hear Jordan Schachtel's take on this. He says, there are geopolitical realities and then there are ideological frameworks and constructs that don't bear any resemblance to reality. In America today, we're dealing with the latter framework through shoddy, biased war reporting presented to us by the corporate media and our ruling class, which insists upon a dichotomy that doesn't exist. And I, and I have to add this as, as an aside. The people who are feeding us this narrative are the very same people who fed us a narrative over the last couple of years about how we have to close everything down, we have to take away your freedoms, we have to force you to wear a mask, we have to force you to get an, a, a vaccine that you may or may not want. This is why you need to be cautious. He says, let's talk about reality. Detached from all the morality signaling on social media and TV, though Russia is the aggressor and is therefore responsible for most of the violence and suffering in Ukraine, this does not mean Ukraine can suddenly be labeled as an extension to American founding ideals. We, the free people of the world, can absolutely support a country that's currently defending itself, but we don't need to pretend that Ukraine is something that it's not. Here's an interesting tweet. This is from Oliver Carroll. As expected, little agreement last night. This is for a story from the Independent from the UK. Putin and Zelensky hold first meeting ever, or first ever meeting. This was back in December of 2019. As expected, little agreement last night, but privately both sides understand each other. As per a Kremlin insider, no Ukrainian president can fulfill Minsk agreements and stay in power. There is no solution. It's a frozen conflict for the next 100 years. Now, Jordan Schachtel says Ukraine and Russia might sport separate flags and they might currently play for different great power teams. But the two nations are not so different, after all. On the governance scale, both countries rank as two of the most kleptocratic and corrupted countries on Earth. In Russia, oligarchs have heavy sway over the economy and politics of the nation. Well, the same applies in Ukraine, where the sitting president was elected as the mere patron of a powerful oligarch. The average average Ukrainian struggles mightily under this unfair, broken system. Ukraine is a country of abject poverty where the average citizen earns around 3700 bucks a year. Now here's a <clears throat> this is a tweet from uh, March 1st, just a couple of days ago. Will Zelensky target all Uk- Ukrainian oligarchs equally? This is from uh, atlanticcouncil.org. 
The point being, even the Atlantic Council is pointing out the unsavory connection between Zelensky and Kolomoisky and asks who is actually calling the shots in Ukraine. Okay, that's a fair question. See, in 2021, Ukraine's President Zelensky, facing facing declining poll ratings, took it upon himself to place his foremost political rival under house arrest while shutting down opposition television, television networks, all in the name of national security. Now, why don't Russia and Ukraine get along? Well, sometimes they do, says Jordan Schachtel. Ukrainians often elect both pro-West and pro-Russia candidates to higher office. Western governments in recent history have not supported when the latter situation occurs, sometimes fomenting clandestine color revolutions to seek their exit from politics in Ukraine. Long-standing tribalism, historical disputes, and committed atrocities are also responsible for a fierce dislike between some Ukrainians and Russians. The Soviet Union, through genocide, famine, and other means, committed unspeakable atrocities against the Ukrainian people. And because of this, some Ukrainians understandably resent the USSR's progeny in their Slavic cousins to the east. But again, the idea that Ukraine is a Jeffersonian democracy squaring off against the evil bear empire in Russia is simply false. Schachtel says we read a lot about Putin's authoritarianism in the news, but we don't hear much about the troubles within Ukraine. And most likely because it's less consequential on the world stage. And during the current Russia-Ukraine squabble, Kiev has, for its most, for its part, spawned some troublesome ideologies within its own ranks. Here's a tweet from Joe Schickman. This was from yesterday, actually. Ukraine's Special Operations Command just issued a warning to Russian soldiers that they will not be taken prisoners and will be slaughtered like pigs without the option of surrendering. This is a public admission of a war crime. Now, Ukrainian leaders now seem committed to trying to drag their Western partners into face-to-face conflict with Russia. Ukrainian politicians have a lot to lose, including potentially their lives. So their desperation is somewhat understandable. Ukraine might be winning the propaganda war, but the war on the ground tells a different story. Russia continues to secure access to the sea, and it will soon succeed in completely cutting off Ukrainian forces. Russia might be facing <laughs> excuse me, heavy sanctions, but its armies continue vacuuming up territory in Ukraine. I'm looking at a tweet here from Gavin Mario Wax, a map you won't see on the fake news media. And it's a map of Ukraine showing that the Russian advances and maneuvers actually look quite good. They're going to cut off Odessa. They're going to surround the Ukrainians in the east. But the thing that's most noticeable about this map, no interest in western Ukraine. Jordan Schachtel says, so far, NATO, meaning the United States military, has rejected intervening. And they should not intervene because World War III is not worth it. But powerful Western interests in Washington, D.C. and Brussels are attempting to use Ukrainians as pawns for a long-standing political campaign against Moscow. The massive weapons shipments continue to arrive in Western Ukraine with hopes that Ukrainians will use them in a long campaign against Russia. And he says, I hope Ukrainians recognize this and refuse to act as human sacrifices for these campaigns. Ukraine, facing a tug of war between Russia and the West, has a way out of this mess if only its leaders choose to accept the reality it's facing. Putin's terms are pretty straightforward. The recognition of Crimea as part of Russia and the demilitarization of Ukraine. 
Now, given that this is Russia's initial approach, Ukraine can probably find some flexibility on that second demand. Though key to the agreement will come through uh, Ukraine, the key... Though key to the agreement will come through Ukraine recognizing some geopolitical realities, like the fact that Crimea is most certainly gone and that the pro-Russia separatist regions in Ukraine want nothing to do with Ukraine. Since its modern recognition in 1991, Ukraine has remained bogged down by corruption, bad governance and damaging foreign influence. The Biden family probably knows a little bit about that. Should Ukraine truly commit to remaining neutral, Jordan Schachtel says the country can reset relations with its neighbors and one day become a free and prosperous nation. Pretty interesting. And I think one of the big differences, too, between Ukraine and the U.S. is, as far as I know, uh, the U.S. is not laundering money in Russia. But it certainly appears that there was some kind of funny business going on again with Hunter Biden in Ukraine. Now, again, I have to reiterate, this does not mean, therefore, Ukraine, they, they deserve whatever they're getting right now. That's not what's being said. It's just simply understand, you're not dealing with guys in white hats and guys in black hats. As with most conflicts around the world, it's tough to spot who the good guys are. Because sometimes they just don't, uh, <laughs> they don't stand out so apparently. Now, from here, I want to shift gears, and this this is gonna this one is probably gonna make more people uncomfortable. But I want to talk about Ukraine in the context of why does the Pentagon and the CIA hate Julian Assange? In other words, what is Julian Assange and the the distaste and the disdain that's felt for him from the Pentagon and CIA? What does that have to do with Ukraine? Well, Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation says, as almost everyone knows. The hatred that U.S. officials have for Julian Assange has no bounds. For years, they have relentlessly and obsessively done everything they can to destroy, isolate, persecute, prosecute, incarcerate, torture, and hound the guy to death. They've even contemplated assassinating him through their omnipotent, dark-side, non-reviewable power of assassination, a power that the U.S. national security establishment wields and exercises on a regular basis without any interference by the federal judiciary or the Congress. So the question, why do they hate Assange so much? And it's in part because he disclosed to the American people dark side secrets of the U.S. national security establishment. And in a national security state, form of governmental structure, that is among the gravest offenses that a person can ever commit. So consider, for example, that a certain cable that Assange's organization WikiLeaks revealed to the world. That cable was sent 13 years ago in, 20, in 2009 rather, by William J. Burns, the U.S. ambassador to Russia. And this is what it stated, quote, in part, it stated, NATO enlargement, particularly to Ukraine, remains an emotional and neuralgic issue for Russia. But strategic policy considerations also underlie strong opposition to NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. In Ukraine, these include fears that the issue could potentially split the country in two, leading to violence or even some claim civil war, which would force Russia to decide whether to intervene. Additionally, the GOR and experts continue to claim that Ukrainian NATO membership would have a major impact on Russia's defense industry. Russian-Ukrainian family connections, and bilateral relations generally. 
During his annual review of Russia's foreign policy, January 22nd through 23rd, Foreign Minister Lavrov stressed that Russia had to view continued eastward expansion of NATO, particularly to Ukraine and Georgia, as potential as a potential military threat. While Russia might believe statements from the West that NATO was not directed against Russia, when looking at recent military activities in NATO countries like the establishment of U.S. forward operating locations, etc., they had to be evaluated not by stated intentions, but by potential And while Russian opposition to the first round of NATO enlargement in the mid-1990s was strong, Russia now feels itself able to respond more forcefully to what it perceives as actions contrary to its national interests. End quote. Now, Jacob Hornberger says, keep in mind something important. U.S. Ambassador Burns became CIA director on March 19th, 2021. Why is that important? Because Burns had been the director of the CIA for almost a year before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In other words, Burns' cable constitutes conclusive proof that the Pentagon and the CIA knew with absolute certainty what Russia's response would be if they threatened to have NATO absorb Ukraine. And Jacob Hornberger says, as he and others have pointed out, by threatening to absorb NATO, the Pentagon and the CIA knowingly, intentionally, and deliberately cornered Russia into making an untenable choice. Number one, permit Ukraine to join NATO, which would thereby enable the Pentagon and CIA to install military bases, missiles, tanks, troops, and other weaponry on Russia's border. Or, number two, invade Ukraine to prevent that from happening. Now, can you see why they hate Assange so much? Do you see why the CIA and the Pentagon have gone after him so viciously? If WikiLeaks had not revealed Burns' cable, the Pentagon and the CIA could have acted innocent and, and labeled anyone who outlined their strategy as a conspiracy theorist. But the disclosure of Burns' cable foreclosed that possibility and revealed as an absolute certainty that both the Pentagon and the CIA knew that Russia, when placed in the corner which the Pentagon and the, in which the Pentagon and the CIA maneuvered it, would choose to invade Ukraine rather than permit the Pentagon and the CIA to install their military bases, missiles, tanks, troops, and other weaponry on Russia's border. So Jacob Hornberger says, I ask you a simple question. Which is more evil, Russia's invasion of Ukraine or the Pentagon's and CIA's political gamesmanship that brought about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. After all, at the risk of stating the obvious, simply because Russia's invasion of Ukraine is evil doesn't convert the Pentagon's and the CIA's strategy to induce Russia to invade Ukraine into something good. Despite the evil of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Pentagon and the CIA's political gamesmanship that produced Russia's invasion of Ukraine remains evil as well, and is possibly even more evil. Now, notice something important about the U.S. mainstream press. They focus exclusively on the evil of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but they don't even mention the evil of the Pentagon's and the CIA's political gamesmanship that brought about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Why is that? I mean, the Pentagon and the CIA have a lot of assets within the mainstream press. Anyone who honestly thinks that the CIA abandoned its Operation Mockingbird program after it became public is suffering from extreme naivete. Why would the CIA abandon a program in which mainstream journalists are available to spout the national security establishment's propaganda whenever called upon to do so? But what about American statists? 
especially those who are expressing outrage over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Why aren't they as outraged over the Pentagon's and the CIA's political maneuvering as they are at Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And the answer is they, too, are focusing exclusively on Russia's invasion of Ukraine with no focus whatsoever on the evil of the role that the Pentagon and the CIA have played in producing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. After all, the condemnation of both events are not mutually exclusive. One can easily condemn both. So the answer lies in the extreme refusal of American statists to criticize or condemn the U.S. national security establishment. The Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA, which are the three principal components of the U.S. national security establishment, are a kind of triune god to American statists. No different from the triune god that American Christians worship on Sunday. That's why, for example, American statists cheered when the, when the Pentagon and CIA were doing to the people of Iraq and Afghanistan the same thing that Russia is now doing to the people of Ukraine. After all, for the past several years or even months, there could have been massive protests by American statists about how against how the Pentagon and CIA were using NATO to intentionally, knowingly, and deliberately bring about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And those protests could have conceivably pressured the Pentagon and the CIA to direct President Biden to publicly forswear NATO's absorption of Ukraine. If Biden had just made that simple announcement, there never would have been a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And all those dead Russian soldiers and Ukrainian people would still be alive today. But Hornberger says, as we all know, No protests like this ever took place. Given the unswerving devotion to their political triune god, American statists could not even conceive of going down what to them would be an unpatriotic road, a road that entailed open opposition to their triune political god. And that's undoubtedly the big reason for the silence that characterizes American statists today toward what the Pentagon's and the CIA's political gamesmanship toward Russia has wrought for the people of Ukraine. Now, he says it's worth mentioning the outcome of the Pentagon's and CIA's political gamesmanship. Massive death and destruction in Ukraine. A new old, a new and old official enemy for the U.S. that now is garnering the ire of the entire world. A massive rallying to the Pentagon and the CIA, possibly even more so during the Cold War or even after the 9-11 attacks. Unlimited, tax-funded largesse flooding into the coffers of the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA and their ever-growing army of defense contractors. Ever-growing, omnipotent power of the national security establishment within America's federal government structure. Even more federal spending, debt, and inflation. The ever-expanding destruction of the rights and liberties of the American people. Greater possibility of all-out nuclear war between Russia and the United States. But at least the Pentagon and the CIA's deadly, vicious, and destructive gamesmanship is there for all who care to see it. And Jacob Hornberger asks again, is it any wonder why they hate Julian Assange? Now look, I get it. You know, these are the people that we we believe are, are there to keep us safe. But it doesn't mean that you're admitting, hey, Russia's right, or that you're claiming Russia's right by calling out these evil backroom and, and dark ops, you know, kinds of, of policies that have been carried out by the U.S. Jacob Hornberger, I think, actually gave the best analogy that I've ever heard, and that is after World War II, the people of the United States 
essentially made a deal with the devil in the form of accepting the CIA, the NSA, and let's see, what was the, what was the third one? The Pentagon? Yeah. The, the, three, the three prongs of our, of our new state religion, the national security state. We embraced that in return for keeping us safe from these uh, evil communists out there in the world. You know, the Stalins and so forth that were out there spreading communism abroad. And in accepting that deal with the devil, we actually said, no, it's okay. You do your work in dark. We don't want to know too much about what you're doing. Just keep us safe. And the national security apparatus was more than happy to oblige. But now it's being turned against us. Maybe that was something they didn't contemplate at the time, but it most certainly is happening. Now the question is, what are we going to do about it? This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Dr. Vladimir Zelenko knows a thing or two about the immune system. He was nominated for a Nobel Prize for his early COVID-19 treatments, and now he's offering his Z-Stack supplements to our listeners at a discount. Just go to zstacklife.com slash freedom. That's zstacklife.com slash freedom. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. It's time to rethink COVID disinfection. A study by Harvard, Drexel, and Virginia Tech concluded, we don't have a single documented case of COVID transmission through surfaces. The reality is that COVID spreads mainly through the air. Shared air is the problem, not shared surfaces. The solution is the Genesis Fogger, which uses natural HOCL to disinfect both air and surfaces simultaneously. It's perfect for home or business. NIH says HOCL may well be the disinfectant of choice for coronaviruses. There's nothing more natural or more effective. Genesis fogs at the precise particle size to combat COVID and other harmful pathogens. It's what's missing from your disinfecting protocol. Visit genesisfogger.com. 
America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash OUTLOUD. Hey, once again, welcome back. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. Well, if I didn't offend you too badly or run you off from the first half of the program, I'm going to make it worth your while to stick around for the second half. I know that uh, to some, I I must appear to be nothing more than a a highly paid Russian stooge. I I only wish I was highly paid anything, but no, I'm not a Russian stooge, and and I'm not trying to, to, uh, to... fall into this dichotomy that, well, it's either this or it's this. You know, it's, you're either with us or you're with the uh, with them. I think we have to question everything. And it's, it's very clear to me that uh, there's a lot that is going on right now that the media will not touch because their job is not to keep us informed. It's not to act as watchdogs for what those in power are doing and to warn us. It's to make sure that we know what we're supposed to believe and to, of course, steer us in another direction if we start to get a little too uncomfortably close to the truth. And here's the truth that's going to make some people real uncomfortable, but it needs to be talked about. Why are insurance company actuaries reporting an unusual spike in the deaths of people ages 18 to 64 during the last half of 2021? Now, this wouldn't be such a big deal if COVID hadn't been so highly politicized, but because it was, maybe we deserve some answers. And in this case, Robert E. Wright from the American Institute for Economic Research weighs in. And I don't think, I don't think you, could, you could say, well, he's taking deadly aim at everybody like Dr. Fauci, you know, with this and laying the blame at his feet. But he's certainly asking the right kinds of questions. Robert Wright says, a year ago, I explained that the U.S. life insurance industry survived the first phase of the pandemic despite deaths increasing from 2.85 million in 2019 to 3.39 million in 2020. Fearful Americans bought more life insurance and most of those who died from COVID-19 were old and hence expected to die soon in a statistical sense anyway. Essentially, their individual life insurance policies had been bought and paid for. That overall deaths ticked up slightly in 2021 to 3.42 million would not therefore seem to be uh, troubling. But in the second half of the year, however, mortality unexpectedly spiked among working Americans covered by group policies through their employers. And that is shocking because the idea behind group life is that the mortality rate of working adults is both low and stable. Premiums in that highly competitive segment of the industry are accordingly low with little margin for error. And if you count on life insurance to protect your loved ones in the event of your death, he says, don't fret, not yet. Reinsurers and regulators still assure policyholders that all death claims will be quickly paid to beneficiaries as usual. But the scary aspect of the spike right now, then, is not the threat of life insurance industry collapse. It's that the cause or causes of the spike remain as one industry analyst put it, murky. Some actuaries suggest that the spike protein caused the spike. In other words, COVID-19 deaths are being undercounted and explain most of the rise in excess predicted mortality. Now, the undercount hypothesis might make sense 
if the pandemic had not become so politicized. But if the hypothesis is plausible, however, the remaining COVID quacks would push the narrative, well, the disease is now killing large numbers of workers, and they would use that to justify more mandates and Trudeau-esque repression of civil liberties. Now, Robert E. Wright says, Unfortunately, insurers generally do not investigate the cause of death, which is a reason why he called for special COVID-19 insurance policies, or at least riders, at the beginning of the pandemic. Insurers have no immediate incentive to sniff out cause of death because they have to pay regardless of cause, with a few exceptions like suicide soon after policy issuance. But life insurers are starting to think about increasing premiums, and that is where matters could get interesting because then they will have to take a stand on what is causing excess mortality, COVID-19 itself or the public health responses to COVID-19. Now, in the former case, they should base premiums for new policyholders and on group policies, which are usually repriced annually, on things like vaccination status. In the latter case, insurers will have to discern, if they can get more detailed data from the CDC, the extent to which COVID-19 public health interventions are killing people. Maybe it is the combined stress of the last two years, from masking faces to masking the truth. Or maybe it's stress plus fewer visits to the doctor. Maybe one particular intervention is mostly to blame. Maybe one loudly touted as safe and effective that remains shrouded in statistical obscurity and shielded from the objective scrutiny of liability insurers. Wright says one might think that life insurers, both publicly traded ones and mutuals and their research arms like the Society of Actuaries and LIMRA, would push government officials for data sufficient to tease out the causes of excess mortality. After all, they owe it to their stockholders, policyholders, and clients to set premiums rationally. Insurance regulators should also push for proper data disclosure so that they can do their job of protecting the industry and its millions of beneficiaries. He says, think how glorious it would be for America's public health officials if objective third-party observers with real skin in the game and no incentive to follow CDC dictates reject the hypothesis that vaccines and or other public health policies are responsible for the recent spate of excess deaths. They could bask in the glory of showing that truckers, America's frontline doctors, and other COVID-19 vaccine skeptics are not just wrong-headed, but empirically wrong. If only to reduce fears that they've been captured by Big Pharma, you would think that Fauci and company would strongly encourage life insurers to investigate the matter. But Robert E. Wright says perhaps, though, the fact that life insurance actuaries are highly qualified independent analysts of mortality and regulated primarily at the state, not the national level, has made America's public health officers reticent to encourage actuarial analysis. Provided proper data, life actuaries might discover something damning about our public health policies and have incentives to act on it. Imagine if other underwriting variables like age-equal lockdown Californians had to pay higher premiums than free Floridians, or if premiums went up with each booster shot. Those increases would be difficult to blame credibly on greedy corporations. I like that he leaves uh, some room here for you and I to make up our own minds. But wouldn't you like to at least know what the truth of the matter is? I know I would. Even if I can't do a whole lot about it, 
I still would like to know. All right, moving on. As hard as it is for most of us to consider setting aside social media, would you consider doing so if it was doing invisible damage, either to you or to to your kids for that matter? Got a great take here from Kent McManigal on uh, social media doing invisible damage. And I need this reminder from time to time because I find that uh, the generation gap is a real thing. He says, throughout history, the older generation has thought that younger generations are weak, frivolous, and self-centered. Just as that older generation's elders thought the same of it, and so on to the beginnings of our species. Well, he says it's time to break the cycle with some reality. Young people are not much different from generation to generation. You and I were just as foolish when we were young as were our grandparents. Only the details of our foolishness differed. We grew up and found ways to be foolish, mature people. And the problem isn't with the young people of any era, it's the world they find themselves living in. Now, growing up during war or famine or a plague, and I mean a real plague like the Black Death, not the, not an overreaction like COVID, is going to affect the development of young people more than it affects the lives of the older generations. It's easier to damage a seedling than a mature tree. But the thing most damaging to youth today is the deceptively named plague of social media. It's as bad as war or pestilence, says Kent McManigal. But like famine or disease, there's no point in throwing blame. Your energy is better spent helping the affected learn to live in spite of the trouble around them. Now, most young people will just overcome and go on, but many will not. Those most susceptible to the opinions of others are at a disadvantage, just as those too weak to hunt for food were at a disadvantage in hunter-gatherer societies. If you saw someone in trouble, whether starving or injured, you'd help. But social media injury isn't always so obvious. Symptoms of this damage, also known as wokeness, include identity problems, racism sold as anti-racism, and a call for everyone to be exactly equal, not in rights, but in outcomes. This often results in a reliance on government to fix everything with legislation or by handing out money it doesn't have. It leaves scars as real as a missing limb, a bullet wound, or even a head injury. Now, Kent McManigal says, I was recently encouraged by the report of four Clovis, New Mexico teenagers who came to the aid of another young person who had been injured in an accident. Instead of just taking pictures of the scene and posting them to social media, as has happened in other emergencies around the world, They jumped into action and helped. And he says, in the end, we'll be fine because they'll be fine. Now, from here, I want to shift and just ask you, you know, I don't know how much you use social media. Smart people, I think, reduce their their interaction on social media because they realize social media makes us more susceptible to manipulation. I mean, how could it be otherwise? When the social media algorithms specialize in determining what do you want to see and then feeding you your preferred mental nourishment of whatever it is that will keep you coming back and clicking for more and more of of the same. They know how to activate the the pleasure response centers in our brains and the reward centers, you know, with a little, uh, little release of dopamine. Ding! Oh, somebody liked what I shared. Somebody commented on what I shared. Someone agreed with me. Yeah, I know we don't want to think that we're susceptible to it, but the truth of the matter is, we are. So how easy would it be to set aside social media? 
Got an article here from Katie or from Kate McCall. This was published in intellectualtakeout.org. She suggests that social media is showing us that the world wants to be deceived. She says in October 2021, Facebook changed its brand name to Meta. We believe the metaverse will be the successor to the mobile Internet, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said in a speech announcing the change. We'll be able to feel present, like we're right here with people no matter how far apart we actually are. Now, never mind that this is this noble intention of connecting people is predicated on an almost $117 billion annual budget, or profit, rather. That's a profit made largely by showing people only what they want to see and what will keep them coming back. Kate McCall says, Zuckerberg's statement, losing as it does to the emotional satisfaction of close human interaction, could have been written by a sophist, one who uses words for purposes other than the conveyance of reality, and particularly for personal gain. 20th century German philosopher Joseph Piper discussed sophistry in his 1970 book, Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power. A brief and incisive work, the book focuses on the nature of language of words as a mediator between mankind and the reality he inhabits, the conduit to truth. It is through words, Piper wrote, that we can both grasp and communicate truth. This is the essential nature of language. However, when the sophists don't use language to communicate truth, they corrupt the very essence of language and therefore also of human existence. Word and language form the medium that sustains the common existence of the human spirit, Piper wrote. And so, if the world becomes, or the word rather, becomes corrupted, human existence itself will not remain unaffected and untainted. Holy cow, do we not see that today? In the corruption of words that uh, were once commonly understood and used, now they mean entirely different things. Nobody can be sure if what they're saying is allowed or if it's now considered, you know, offensive or, you know, dare I say it, racist. Now, unfortunately, Kate McCall says this is what we're seeing unfold today with the Internet, with social media in general, and most especially with Zuckerberg's metaverse. Piper's words offer a prescient analysis of these developments providing insight for those who have eyes to see past today's stream of digital consciousness. Man, as Aristotle observed, is a social animal. To communicate with others is fundamental to us. But when words are divorced from reality, Piper postulates we lose our ability to communicate and ultimately cease to respect people as human beings. Despite this possibility of abuse, Piper goes on to state, comfortingly, that all vehicles of language, be it song, print, film, broadcast, etc., are nevertheless designed to capture and communicate reality. But what about the metaverse? Piper, after all, was writing before the dawn of the Internet. Is social media designed to capture and communicate reality? Piper described a future kind of communication in chillingly prophetic fashion. Quote, it is entirely possible that the true and authentic reality is being drowned out by the countless superficial information bits noisily and breathlessly presented in propaganda fashion. Consequently, one may be entirely knowledgeable about a thousand details and nevertheless, because of ignorance regarding the core of the matter, remain without basic insight. End quote. Boy, that is right on the money. Another German philosopher 
Arnold Galen, labeled such ignorance a fundamental one created by technology and nourished by information. Now, Piper elaborated that the place of authentic reality is taken over by a fictitious reality, a pseudo-reality, deceptively appearing as being real so much so that it becomes almost impossible anymore to discern the truth. Kate McCall says, hey, one need only replace the term pseudo-reality with the term virtual reality to realize that the scenario Piper proposes as readily conceivable is here and that the upsurge of Facebook's meta will only accelerate the situation. Though the phenomenon Piper identifies saturates almost all of the Internet, social media is perhaps the epitome of this, a constant stream of information completely devoid of real insight. Mundus volt decipi, the world wants to be deceived. Could it be through the Internet and other digital media, that we have finally developed a means of communication that is designed to subvert the function of words in human discourse? Have we entered an age where the line between fiction and reality has, by means of sophistry, become so blurred that we cannot always tell the difference? The speech of sophists, Piper wrote, is driven by flattery or language intended not to communicate reality but to get something from the listener. The sophist statement itself may or may not be true. It is the intention that is key. An intention divorced from the essential truth-communicating nature of language. And we, being a fallen race, often prefer flattery to the truth. Piper painted for us a picture of the man enthralled by sophistic adulation. Quote, What the world really wants is flattery. And it does not matter how much of it is a lie, but the world at the same time also wants the right to disguise so that the fact of being lied to can be easily ignored. As I enjoy being affirmed in my whims and praised for my foibles, I also expect credibility to make it easy for me to believe that everything I hear, read, absorb, and watch is indeed true, important, worthwhile, and authentic. End quote. So here we have the perfect description of the echo chamber created by social media, curated news feeds, Google search suggestions, targeted advertising. On and on, the complex algorithms that drive the virtual world have a very specific purpose. They are there to show us not the truth, but what we want to see. And too often, we are more than willing to be deceived. I don't know about you, but that one stings. And I think it it stings because I recognize that's true. I would much rather hear comforting lies that flatter me and tell me how great I am. I would, I'm, I'm much happier when people are patting me on the back and saying, boy." I loved getting, I love getting checks with my name on them <laughs> or notifications. Somebody's put money in your PayPal or your Venmo account. But if you are a person who is serious about living in reality, if you are a person who is serious about making the difference you were born to make, then you got to grow up. And yeah, you'll hopefully get some accolades along the way. I mean, it's, it's nice to be appreciated, but you'll also understand the people who are most freely handing out those accolades and the glad handing and whatnot typically want something from you. And perhaps what they want is your allegiance above all. And that's something you got to be very careful with, uh, you know, giving that allegiance. 
There are certain things that I think deserve our wholehearted allegiance. God, family, and to an extent country, but too many people mistake that for, well, that means then you give your allegiance to your government. And I don't agree with that. At least to the extent that, you know, your government may be actively engaged in trying to destroy your country. But that's a decision you and I have to make. And in order to make that decision as fully informed as possible, that means we have got to become the human equivalent of truth detectors. Now, I wish I had some easy formula. Well, you know, if you just do this, you know, send me 1099, I'll send you the secrets of how you can do it. Overnight, you'll be a human truth detector when you wake up tomorrow morning. Did I say 10 bucks? Send me 100 bucks. <laughs> we're going to test your, your smarts while we're at it. You know, a lot of people uh, would probably flunk that test the first time. But you've got to be willing to go after the truth, including truth that leads you to uncomfortable places. And for some people, that uh, you know, that can be very scary. I'll tell you, the the place where where it is most frightening for me is when I start questioning truths regarding my fundamental, foundational religious beliefs. And you know, for some, then people, well, Brian, it's because you're standing on shaky ground. And you know, it could be. Maybe I am. But I think it's more from the standpoint of you know, there are things that. Uh, If this is wrong, I don't want to know. Can you relate to that? It applies in politics. It applies in other areas as well. But for me, that's that's the one place where I don't like to go chipping away at my foundation because there's very little in this world already that I feel like is stable, that I can stand firmly on and not worry about the ground shifting under my feet. But this is how you separate the serious truth seekers from the not-so-serious ones. And just for the record... Nothing has given me more of a sense of solidity in my foundational beliefs than making a very deliberate and concerted personal effort to to seek out my creator. Now, some people don't believe in God. That's fine. Some people call God by different names. That's fine, too. But my point is simply, whatever truth you're seeking... Courage is going to be a part of that equation. You're going to have to be willing to face things that will either alter or perhaps enlarge or perhaps even contradict things that you already had accepted to be true. I had a very good friend. This guy was a very uh, influential mentor in my life. And the interesting thing was uh, there were some things that he and I did not have a lot in common. For instance, he was a diehard atheist. And when I say diehard, I mean a proselytizing atheist. He would go out and preach the gospel of not believing in God. But something he said that was uh, that was always uh, impressive to me because I saw him put this in practice in his own life was, when I encounter new truth, I change my thinking. What do you do, ma'am or sir? And it was just a good reminder to me that we're all going to encounter truth sometimes uncomfortable truth at times throughout our life. If we encounter that, you know, what are we going to do? If we stumble over it, do we just pick ourselves up, as Winston Churchill said, dust ourselves off and hurry away, hoping nobody saw us trip over it? Because that's what a lot of people do. It's hard to admit we were wrong. But once you understand that being wrong is, is not a bad thing in and of itself, if it enables you to take those next steps into the light 
and closer to truth. Interestingly, interestingly enough, my friend um, who had, had given me that, that saying about when I encounter new truth, you know, I change my thinking. I had a conversation with him a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I knew that his health was bad. I knew he had a form of cancer that had been uh, in remission for a time and it appears that it had returned. And um, I know that uh, his daughter had indicated to me, hey, you know what, uh, he's probably got a month or two left. And one day I just uh, got this urge to call him. So I called him and I talked to him. And in the course of that conversation, I mean, you can call this what you want, inspiration or whatever, I felt a real distinct prompting to to ask him tell me about what you have learned in your lifetime in other words to treat this like this is the last time you'll ever get to talk to your friend so i asked him some pretty probing questions and i said jim what's the purpose of life now keep in mind you know this is a, he's a diehard atheist and his answer actually surprised me because he said the purpose of life is love it is to love others and to be loved in return he told me about uh, his his uh, wife who had passed away. Um, she had died of cancer some years earlier. He talked about how he uh, he still spoke to her as if she were there and how he missed her. He talked to me about the importance of being true to yourself. And, you know, not, not to be unkind to Tiger Woods, but he used the example of, you know, here's a young man who had everything going for him at the absolute top of his profession, being a professional golfer, married to a beautiful supermodel. He has a family. He's got all this. But because he would not be true to himself, in other words, because he had a wandering eye, he lost it. And he gives the the quote from Shakespeare about to thine own self be true. And he says, you know, I used to say those words and I believed them, but he says, now I feel them to my bones. One of the most important things you can do in the course of your life is to learn to be true and consistent to yourself. And I reminded him, you know, Jim, you've told me when I encounter new truth, I change my thinking. What do you do, sir? And I said, you remember telling me that? He goes, absolutely. And he goes, I've I've tried to live by that all my life. And I said, well, considering that we're having this conversation and that, uh, you know, you, you are approaching the end of your life. I said, do you still believe that? In other words, if, uh, if you were to encounter new truth at the completion of your life, would you change your thinking? And he says, I guess we're going to find out. I was like, okay, fair enough. Sounds to me like he's being consistent in, in his principles. So I had this wonderful conversation with him. I hung up the phone and thought, man, that was, I learned a lot from that conversation. And the next day, I get a call from his daughter telling me, hey, daddy passed away last night. And I mean, I, I know, I kind of got a little bit of a chill, like, whoa. I did not know it would be my last conversation with him, but something told me, treat it as if this is your last conversation. And, you know, not having uh, died myself, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Did he encounter new truth at the moment he passed from this life? I believe he did. But I can't say that I know it for sure, because that's not something that I've been through myself yet. My point is simply this, though. Facing that truth with courage is going to be the hallmark of the people who are able to not only withstand all the deception and all the manipulation that's being blasted at us these days, but 
this is going to be the hallmark of the people who will be able to wield their influence in ways that are beneficial to the people around them. Does that make sense? I'm not talking about you've got to go take on the world and you've got to become a superstar and then people will take you seriously. I'm suggesting that there are people in your immediate circle of influence, members of your family, people within your neighborhood, people that you work with, people within your church congregation, to whom you are an important, essential influence. And if you want to be the right kind of influence, you have got to be the kind of person who is upright, not always right, but upright in their willingness to go after the truth, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it requires that we change our thinking on certain situations or ideas. And here's the crazy part about it. You won't even know that you're having influence on people for the most part. You will not know. You'll have the satisfaction of having peace in your conscience, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good and desirable thing. But there's something amazing that happens when sometime down the road, much to your surprise, someone comes out of the shadows of your memory or someone you encounter after a long time being separated from them, confides in you that you were an essential influence in their life or you helped them turn a corner and start on a better and higher path than they were on before. And what makes it all the better is because you weren't trying to force them or manipulate them into that. You inspired them through your friendship and your love for them as well as your personal example. That's why it matters. That's why we need people who are willing to stand for the truth people who are willing to live their lives as disciples of liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the America Out Loud Network.